Good evening. We are in the Keter Shem Tov, volume 3, page 1. V'zalat Hashem, today we will be starting our actual shiurim in the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. You have in front of you, and I don't know actually why the introduction to the Keter Shem Tov is found in volume number 3 and not in volume number 1. For whatever reason that is, seems to be, and I, I can't tell you this is not authoritative, just a, a theory of mine, a guess of mine, yeah, which is it seems that in volumes 1 and 2, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin was pressed for money. It seems very difficult for him to print his books for whatever reason. And it could be that he printed those just as soon as he could get them printed. And when it comes to volume 3, there already seems to be a demand from his books. So if you look on, on page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 of his book, Hagdamash, I have a V at the bottom, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin explains how people actually want his book and they've been asking him to please provide them with copies of his book, and he was motivated to write more books, and that seems to have changed something over here. You have a few names of funders here in Manchester that were funding his works, and it could be that now he finally had the luxury to add extra pages to his work, Ketar Shem Tov. Before we get ahead of ourselves, I'll just read the title page, because before you read any introduction, it's important to know what you are introducing yourself to, and that would be the introduction to this book of Ketar Shem Tov. Ketar Shem Tov, Yechilbo includes Tamei HaMinhagim, the reasons for different Minhagim, different customs, Vashinuim Benosach HaHagadah Shel Pesach, and differences between the variant texts of the Haggadah of Pesach. Uvenosach HaTafilot, Ben HaSfaradim SheBemizrach, Uven HaSfaradim SheBemarav, and also textual variations between the, what we would like to call the Eastern Sefaradim and the Western Sefaradim. Even though those might sound like two subdivisions of Sefaradim, the subdivisions are, are far more than that, and it would be a mistake to think that you break up East and West only into East and West. And between the customs of our brothers, the Ashkenazim. This is very common language used by Sephardic Chachamim, which is whenever referring to the Ashkenazim, to always refer to them as Ashkenazim, our brothers, the Ashkenazim. I think it's an important language to use. It would be nice to see it work two ways also. It would be nice to just recognize that we're all part of the same family. We may all be crazy. We may have, you know, I have all kinds of relatives that you don't love so much or you think are off the walls, whatever they are. But at the end of the day, they're still your relatives. They're still part of your family. It's exactly what makes us Am Yisrael. And because of that, it's important. Whenever you refer to another group of Jews to give a, a, a prefix of Achenu, they're our brothers, they're our sisters. That's who they are. They're part of the family. All of this is included with sources both from the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud, the writings of the Rishonim and the Charonim. Most likely, the young one, young one doesn't mean necessarily in age, but in wisdom it's a title of humility that one will give themselves. Shem Tov Gagin and Samechtet. So before anybody tells me that, that stands for Sephardi Taho, because it's an absolute fabrication, there is no Sephardic rabbi on earth who signed his name as pure-blooded Sephardi. Today people might write Samechtet as Sephardi Taho. I remember because when I was in Baltimore, I had never seen anyone write Samechtet at the end of a word. All of a sudden, when, when classmates would write letters, they would sign their name, Aleph Tet, you know, Ashkenazi Taho. It's such a weird thing to write at the end of your name. Why would you write that? Who would write that? Does anyone know what's, what Samechtet actually stands for? Or what does it mean? Do I have to say what it stands for? What does it mean? And it's not pure-blooded Sephardic, so don't, don't guess that one. I already took it off the table. 
Very good. That's the Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shalom Asas writes that Zamechtet is like Shlita. It just means the Zen should be well. Meaning you should live for long years. It's a title. You, you would write Zamechtet about anybody. You write an Ashkenazi rabbi, a fight rabbi. Zamechtet would just be wishing them a long life in the way that Jews today would use the acronym Shlita. You know, Shlita. ראש אב בית הדין הוא מורה צדק דקנת קודש ספרדים באנגליה והמושבות וראש יבת אוהל מושב יהודית ברמסגייט. We already mentioned his biography in the past. We should know that class that I gave on Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin got around and a number of different people reached out to me. There's a professor who's been researching uh, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, also another academic who's been researching Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Someone put me in touch with Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's grandson who I'm just uh, about to schedule a conversation with. There are people, Baruch Hashem, that are working on getting the unpublished writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin out there. And as soon as I have more solid information to share with you, I'll be more than happy to share it with you. But that brings us to the next page. So you have here the English translation of everything I just said, so I could have just read from there, of course. Uh, but there's that little box that I mentioned to you earlier on. But it's an important box to see <coughs> for yourself, so you don't trust me for it. You see on the right side of the, the bottom right side of the page, on the second page, it says Moda'a in a box. Rabbanit, it's there. Oh no, sorry, you don't have it. Mechila. The reason you don't have it is because I gave you an unedited version of the Ketel Shem Tov. I'm sorry, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, in my edition, I have it because this is a newer printing of the Ketel Shem Tov. So right here, where it says Ketel Shem Tov, they added a little box. I'm going to read it to you. Moda, warning, notice. Lehevei yadua lechol korea mayen besev ozeret should be known to everybody who reads this book. Sharava mechaber zal, the author of this work of blessed memory. Palat kul muso kama vechama dvarim temuhim. His uh, quill, his pen spat out a number of highly unusual things. And again, we've said that in the past, that as an expression to say, you know, God forbid we would say he wrote things that were wrong, but rather, his quill did it by accident. And the only purpose that this, the only reason for existence that this book has, the only purpose it has, is because it is the source for many customs, in many communities, that have no other uh, source in any other book. And this is the only book that includes those customs. And that is the only reason why we have printed this book a second time. Meaning, it's a dangerous book, be careful from it. But we printed it a second time just because, you know, you have to preserve some of these minhagim. And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is the only one who preserved these minhagim. Like I told you, I, I wouldn't want to be in the next world, next to the person who wrote this moda. That's all I'm saying. I wouldn't want to share that fate. <clears throat> Let me see then now if we're on different pages. Let's look together at the beginning of the introduction. So not the introduction of the introduction, but the beginning of the introduction. And that's going to be in your PDF. Actually, uh, on page six. So page six of your PDF. Before I teach the issue, it's very important for me to make a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is as follows. One of my videos that got me in the most trouble, perhaps, from many of my other videos, you would think it's something worse, but it was that one. 
It's a video titled Abandoning Orthodoxy. And this video made waves when I put it out. Uh, I even had some of my former teachers call me up and ask me what on earth I was thinking by putting out such a video. Um, in which I just threw out there what I believe to be factual. You don't have to agree, but for me, it's what I live in. It's the frame of reference in which I operate. And that is that I am not an Orthodox rabbi. I don't actually know what the word Orthodox means. I don't belong to an Orthodox community or an Orthodox movement. I'm not quite certain. I'll be, meaning, even if I were to Google the definition of Orthodox, the word Orthodox has today so many subcategories and so much chaos inside of that own community. I don't know anymore what makes someone Orthodox or does not make someone Orthodox. For that reason, the only working title that I have is that I am a Sephardi, a Sephardi who believes in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, believes the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai, and I believe that the halachot of the Shulchan Aruch, of the Talmud, of the Rambam, are binding on all of Am Yisrael. Aside from that, I don't have any other working definition of what I am. So if there are Jews that may be part of a different denomination, who also believe in HaKadosh Baruch and also believe that the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai, and they also believe in the Shulchan Aruch and the Code of Jewish Law, in that case, I don't care which denomination they belong or don't belong to, those are my brothers and sisters in faith. If there are going to be people who belong to the Orthodox community, who for whatever reason reject the code of Jewish law, or don't believe in a Kadosh Baruch Hu, or the Kadosh Baruch Hu they believe in is some pagan form of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, in that case, even though they may share the title Orthodox, I don't have anything to do with them aside from the fact that biologically we are part of the same nation. And I say that because today's Shi'ul, is all about the Sephardic reaction to the reform movement. You know, we discuss so often the Ashkenazi Orthodox reaction to the reform movement. And even when I say the word the reform movement, reform has been through so many reforms on its own that I don't even know how to actually title that group. So I think in the class title, I gave it a better name. Maybe non-traditional Ashkenazi circles. I might, I, might, I might have used a word like that because I'm not picking here on just one particular denomination. And it's very important for me to share that this doesn't come from any place of my being a part of one denomination and therefore another denomination. In fact, I don't agree with everything that we're about to read right now. I'm simply here to share a stance. And this year will be made up of two parts. Today's part is going to be understanding Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin and other Sephardic Chachamim like him who had opposition to the any, any non-traditional, I'm using that word loosely, any non-traditional Jewish movement that popped up in the last hundreds of years. And this week we're going to try to understand, at least from their perspective, their Torah perspective, why it is they felt the way they felt. And then there's next week's Shul, which is going to be perhaps a more sinister political plot behind what exactly happened and who are the forces that pulling the strings to make sure that Sephardic rabbis said the things they needed to say at the right time that they needed to say it. And we're going to discuss in the United Kingdom, unfortunately, the United Kingdom is at the center of this conversation a few hundred years ago. And because of that, it's very relevant to us, but I don't want to put the carriage before the horse right now. Let's just start where we are. But my disclaimer, I'm not Orthodox, I'm not Reform, I'm not Conservative. I'm Sephardi, just barely. I try to be Jewish most of my life. Is what it, my, my intention is just to be Jewish. If I fail HaKadosh Baruch in that regard, then maybe I don't even qualify there. But that's my only affiliation. Uh, everything else is really just what we're reading on paper, and I'm sharing opinions with you here of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Can we accept that premise when we go forward? So, so nothing that I say is intended to offend anybody on either side of the spectrum. Chaz v'shalom. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes in his mavo, his introduction. 
He quotes a pasuk in Mishle. Al tavuz ki zakena imecha. Don't disgrace your mother because she has aged. You think your mother's too old? She's not beautiful anymore? Whatever it is you think about her, don't disgrace her just because she's old. Amar Rabbi Zira, Rabbi Zira says, and this is found in Yerushalmi, the end of Maseret Dorechot. What does it mean, Al Tavuz ki zakena imecha? Im nizdakena umatecha. If you're not your mother, not imecha, but umatecha, your nation. If your nation gets old, amod ugadra, stand up and build a gadel, fortify her. If your nation gets old, stand up and fortify your nation. Ma'amar bizira, says Rabbi Shem Tov. This teaching of Rabbi Zira, hu katana kamut verav haichut. It is minimal in quantity, but very great in quality. We say this very often. Sometimes you get books, huge books, and you wonder, there's nothing between these two. I got a book not so long ago, maybe two years ago. I'm not going to mention names here. In other shiurim, I mentioned names. Two volumes. Big, big. Someone spent a lot of money printing these books. A famous rabbi. And I sat down a whole Shabbat. I wasted a whole Shabbat of my life to go from cover to cover of both volumes. At the end of two volumes, I didn't find anything in the book that nobody wrote before, Except for one chidush, one novel insight in which blessing you recite over bamba, an Israeli peanut butter flavored snack. That was the only chidush in the whole book. And it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that people will write such large volumes on things that are so unimportant. And then you have the flip side. Sometimes you'll get a book that is so small that this book can change the world. And that's what we call in rabbinic literature, uh, what do you say here? It's small in terms of quantity, but great in terms of quality. The idea behind it, that if you find that the Jewish people have become old, their customs are old. The obligation rests on the Jews below. To stand up strong. So that they should strengthen their personalities, they shouldn't fall prey to time. Time, time that really destroys and withers everything away, ruins everything. I actually gave you an English translation I found last night. I was searching a name. I actually came across an English translation of this Hagdama. It should be attached to one of the uh, sections in your Google Classroom. Let's say Rabbi Melhado, I don't know him personally, I know of him, I've seen him around the internet and I perhaps have communicated with him in the past, I don't recall uh, where he is, I think he lives today in Los Angeles perhaps, but he did a good job at translating parts of the Ketel Shem Tov, for some reason that project seems to have uh, gone dormant, but you can find uh, perhaps a better English translation than what I'm sharing with you right now, uh, attached to the Google Classroom. So when you see your nations getting old, your job of the rabbis down below is to stand up and strengthen Torah and Judaism, so that it doesn't become prey to time wearing it out or wearing it down. The Rambam writes on what it says in the Mishnah, Our rabbis instituted that when you greet another person, another Jewish person in particular, 
that you should greet them using Hashem's name. How do Jewish people greet each other using Hashem's name? Give me an example. Don't tell me Shalom and Shalom is the name of Hashem. Don't do that. Tell me a real answer. Anyone think of a place in Tanakh where one person greets another person with Hashem's name? Uh, what, what are you saying? Yeah, where does it, do you remember where it says that? We say that when we go up to the Torah. Very good. Vayomer Boaz lakotzrim or ela kotzrim. The pasuk says in mind. Boaz tells the those who are harvesting the fields, Adonai machem. He says, May Hashem be with you. This was a common Jewish blessing. You greet somebody with Hashem's name. That's the way that a Jewish person greets another person. By the way, in the Beit Midrash of Peretz, we're very particular. You haven't noticed not to say hi or hello or goodbye or hey, what's up. These are these are words that you can leave for the street. When you greet another person, especially a person who's part of Am Yisrael, to greet them with the word Shalom. Doesn't mean you're speaking English, you're speaking Hebrew, you're speaking another language. To always say the word Shalom. Shalom is the way the Jewish people greet each other. You don't have to accept it, but in our Benamitaj, that's the way. Shalom at the beginning of a conversation, Shalom at the end of a conversation, Shalom, Shalom, Shalom is something we use all over the place. Can the, I just, can I just jump in, sure, please. So, sometimes, like, obviously no one does that at all, but sometimes, like, I've had in my experience, like, people will say it to kind of like show that they recognize that you're a Jew. Absolutely. You know, either, either someone Jewish, but like in like a, like an out of the way place, like someone clock you and be like, ah, shalom. Or someone else will kind of say it, and they might not be Jewish. And in that case, it's kind of, it's a bit ambiguous. I mean, like, I know you're Jewish, or I know you're Jewish. And there is a funny, uh, Friday night dinner. What did you say? In San Diego, you, you go to the grocery store and you hear, like, where, where's some obscure place, more like what you're referring to? And you're walking in the grocery store and someone says, Shalom! You know, Shalom, you know, somebody's going to say hello to you. Yeah, it could be uh, some priest from Texas, some pastor, I don't know, or it could be a, a Jew that is so happy to see another Jewish person and greet you with Shalom. Uh, so, that, you're right. The amount of strange people who have come over to say shalom to me, I have to tell you, I could write a book of the stories of people who come and shalom me and share all kinds of fascinating things about their life or things that I never wanted to know about their life under the guise of saying shalom. V'lamdu shama pasuk, and our rabbis teach us in that pasuk, al tavuz ki zakenai mecha, aval hu sover shen pasuk zen araya l'shelat shalom. They try to use this verse to show, in the Mishnah, they try to use this verse to show that that's why you should greet people with Hashem's name. Says the Rambam, that's not the reason. That really, the meaning behind this teaching is that, you know, you may think it's unusual to greet people with the word Shalom, or it's unusual to greet people with Hashem's name, or whatever else it might be. But that is not the case. It's not unusual. If our rabbis instituted it, then we have an obligation in order not to disgrace the things that we are, that are part of our national heritage. These are teachings of our rabbis. Uh, because of that, we will still go ahead and do things even if they're unusual today. And he says, this is very similar to what Rabbi Zira was teaching us in the Talmud Yerushalmi, which is that if it may seem outdated to you, nonetheless, this is something that our forefathers did, and because of that, 
we do it ourselves. If you're hearing right now in the back of your mind someone in Fiddler on the Roof singing a song about tradition, we're getting there. Rabbi Shem Tov essentially is going to justify why he's writing a book of Minhagim. Right? We have to understand the whole purpose here is I'm documenting the way the Jewish people do things. And the question is, what value is that? We have a Shulchan Aruch, we have a Rambam, why do we need customs also? And so here Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is going to introduce us to this concept of preserving the way that Am Yisrael did things. There's value to something because that was the way that Am Yisrael did it. You obviously know where I stand on Mihagim. Halperas uh, once when I was speaking with him said that the only thing he's worried about after 120 years is maybe he was a little bit too harsh when he was getting rid of Minhagim. Maybe, maybe after, that's the only thing he'll lose asleep at night. Aside from that, everything else is fine. So I'm not from the Ben Midrash of lovers of Minhagim, but nonetheless, Rabbi Shem Tov is setting us up for, for a conversation regarding Minhagim. In the next paragraph, and our rabbis also taught us about this pasuk of making a, pr- a protection for my Torah. Make a fence for my Torah. This is an obligation of the Bet Adin. We have an obligation to listen to the Bet Adin. We must do everything that they command us. And we have an obligation not to violate any of the things the Bedin rules into effect for Am Yisrael. Like it says, You don't deviate right or left from anything they tell you. Miriam, I think you had a question about this the other week, about listening to Bedin. So this is the origin of that teaching here. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will answer you. Darshu, our rabbis teach us, Avicha elu anevi'im. When it says fathers, those are the prophets. Zekenecha elu azekenim. The elders, that's referring to the chachamim, the elders. Vechan tzivanu, Rav Oya Omer, melot asur. Rabbi Nachman Amar, Shal avicha v'yagedcha. Avia, I don't know, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce the name. So we have here an understanding that we listen to the things that previous generations told us to do. In the introduction to the Rambam's Mishneh Torah, which we're right now in the middle of in our Shiviti night kola, but it's going to take us a long time till we get to this piece of the Rambam. The Rambam writes, These are the decrees that our rabbis, our prophets, and our rabbis instituted in every generation to make a fence for the Torah. And about them, HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded us to fulfill them. The Chachamim will call them Gezerot. Now, really, there is a difference between a Gezerah, a Takana, a Minhag. Those are not all the same words. It's very important. I have a Shi'ur. If you look in my Q&A for Pesach, one of the questions I was asked was the difference between those terms. What is the difference in the Gezerah, Takana? People throw around these words like they don't mean anything. They're not synonyms. They're similar to each other, but they're not synonyms. There are certain things that a rabbi has decreed in order to make offense for the Torah. And then also there are Minhagot. Which is not the way we would say that today. We would say minhagim today, but the Rambam minhagot v'takanot otam shenagu b'chol dovado k'moshu bedin shenoto ado. Or different things that the Jewish people were accustomed to doing, and the Bet Adin recorded those things for us to do. And Kamdeshu no, you can look over there in the Rambam exactly what he's referring to.
Everything we said right now is just a reiteration of the importance to listen to our rabbis, an importance of upholding the words of our prophets. Uh, there's nothing else there aside from those things, and obviously we could talk about that in a different class. But for right now, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is leading us before he's going to explain why he's writing his book. He's first going to have to tell us against who he's writing this book or who he's trying to stop while he's writing this book. And this is why my introduction earlier, for those who weren't here, about reform and orthodoxy and Zafaradim is very important. And again, I'm just going to now read and translate to you what he wrote. I'm not sticking my head here in a battle that I have no interest in getting involved in at all. And like I said, today we're going to read the writings of our rabbis from the rabbinic perspective. And next week we're going to uncover a little more of the unfortunately sinister side of the wars between the Orthodox and Reform camps and how Sephardic rabbis were dragged into the middle of this and that the United Kingdom was really a central part of this entire conversation. So, that's for next week. Divrehem Elu, the words of all of these rabbis, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, at the bottom of page 6. Notim klapei hador hachadash. They are all aimed at the new generation. Shebiyamenu, in our days. Hashoef tamid hachadashot. Which always desires things that are new. We have a generation of Jewish people. They like new things. You know, it's shiny, it's sparkly, it's new, it's a nice thing. We like new things. Vesoneh hayishanot. But on top of liking new things, they also hate old things. That's so outdated, it's so primitive, it's so old-fashioned. There are words that are used in the culture today to discuss exactly what it is that we hold sacred. People today want to tell us that it's old-fashioned, it's out of date. They tell us that the customs of the Jewish people, they've already withered. The origin of that is in Eov. If you look in chapter 30, Pasuk Bet. Over there, Eov uses, it's not exactly the same expression, but it's a similar enough expression. He writes over there, Avad Kalach. So, with a, with a different Nikud. Veniz Daknu, and our customs have already become old. Ubau Bayamim, you know, they're already, it's time for these customs to die. Ve'alenu lekovram beseva tova. It would be proper for us, the Jewish people, to show respect to the Judaism of antiquity, by giving it a proper Jewish burial. He's being sarcastic here. I mean, there's a classic Chacham uh, being sarcastic. I mean, these Minhagim, they're not just old, they're already dead. They're so dead that we should already honor them with burial. It's not nice to leave bodies out and not let them be buried. The old Judaism doesn't fit anymore to the Judaism of today, the, the world that we live in. We are a, door, a generation of knowledge. Again, sarcasm. Do hit kadmut, a generation of progression. Do haskala vechokhmah, we're a generation of intellect, of wisdom. Viegia haet laakor natua. It came time, this is again a play on words. Laakor natua, it's a, not a play on words, it's a reference to Kohelet. In Kohelet chapter 3, Pasuk 2. Shlomo Melech uses these words, na'kol natua. There's time to uproot those things which are already firmly planted. Sometimes it's time to uproot it. You may be familiar with the famous Israeli song. I believe it was written by Naomi Shemel, but don't hold me to it. I'm not an expert in my Israeli folk songs. Al-na'ta'akor natua. Don't uproot that which has already been planted. V'yashan mipnei chadash totziu. 
they invoke another pasuk, which was a favorite of the European Enlightenment movement in the book of Vaikra. It says that you have to clear way for the new by removing the old. And he's referring here now to a Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. The Gemara in front of me has an ikud of Tameh. It's an Aleph at the end, not a Yod, but it's an Aleph with a Tzere. So it would be pronounced the same way. Tameh with a Yod, Tameh with an Aleph. I'm not sure which, maybe he had a different Girsa, or just by memory, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin remembered how to pronounce the word, perhaps not to spell it. I don't want to speak for him. But that Gemara says over there, if you want to look it up on uh, page 89 in Masechet Shabbat, the Gemara says that the elders, they have no wisdom. You know, they're old already. They're senile. He's using now three or four different pesukim to knock the Torah, which is exactly the type of Judaism he's aimed at. He's not upset necessarily at the Jewish people who have abandoned Judaism entirely. He's upset at the Jewish people who use Torah sources, who use texts in the Torah to show that we must abandon the Torah that came before us. This bothers him. This is an allusion. He's alluding to these words because these are key phrases. This is a key phrase of the reform movement, the early reform movement. And then therefore, the orthodox reaction to that, which verse do they always invoke? What's the orthodox reaction to removing the old in the, because of the new? Very good. They say, What does chadash asur Torah mean? New is forbidden according to the Torah. New what? It refers to new grain and to uh, vibrate uh, as this law that most people don't want to follow, unfortunately. That's right. Uh, but you, but uh, grain that was, um, that was seeded after, after, after the second day of Passover, believe, uh, cannot be consumed until the following uh, Passover. Um, so in the book of Aikra, Parashat Emo, the Torah tells us, Velechem, Vekali, Vekarmel, Otochelu, and Etem Ayomazeh. You're not allowed to eat any grains in any form until this day. When is this day? And Adev Yachem, it's called Banu Yachem, until you bring the offering of Kadosh Bachu, the Omer offering. So, Sefirat Omer, when do we start counting Sefirat Omer? When do we begin counting Sefirat Omer? Pesach. Which day of Pesach? So on the second night of Pesach, very good, on the 16th, that's when we offer the Omer offering. And because of that, any grain that has been harvested before Pesach, you are not allowed to eat. On which level? On a biblical, it's a biblical prohibition. So if you take right now, I'm taking a tangent on Yeshan, I just have to. If you take right now hot meat, so to pull out hot meat from your uh, oven, and you put it back in the oven with... Kosher chalav Yisrael cheese, because it has to be, everything has to be kosher for it to be a basal chalav mixture. Yes? Okay, you know, let's not use hot. Hot is a problem. Let's not use hot, okay? Let's use cold. So you make yourself a deli sandwich. You're taking some salami out of the refrigerator. You want to put a slice of mozzarella cheese in between two slices of bread, and you take a bite out of that sandwich. The meat and milk mixture is a violation of which pasuk in the Torah? The Vashel Gadib Chalevimo is no cooking meat and milk together. You just put the salami and the cheese together. Only forbidden to enjoy a cooked meat and milk mixture together. Which prohibition do you violate when you eat salami with mozzarella cheese? Forbidden to eating 
There is no biblical prohibition against eating cold meat and cold cheese together. Don't, please don't go back now to your Batek Knesset. Oh, we learned with uh, Yonatan Halevi. He told us we could have uh, deli and cheese sandwiches uh, all sponsored by the Shiviti Learning Forum. That's, you know, we draw the line at gummy bears, okay? Just let's leave it over here. Uh, right now, when it comes to this sandwich, it's only prohibited to us out of a rabbinic decree. So it's uh, not only. Only means a rabbi's right on Masech Durchod on page 4. Anybody who violates the words of Rechachamim is liable for the death penalty. I don't want people to die. I'm not advocating violating the words of Rechachamim. But when you eat that sandwich, the only part of that sandwich that is actually a biblical prohibition is the bread that you have in the sandwich that has a heksher on it. The bread that has a heksher on it that the kosher certification agency that you follow or rely on doesn't believe that flour has to be yashan. It doesn't have to be old flour to eat it for a myriad of excuses that none of them hold water in a halakhic court of law. That bread is a biblical prohibition. So it would be better, Peretz always used the example, it would be better to take the bread off of the sandwich and eat the salami and the cheese together than to eat the bread. Because the bread is a biblical prohibition. And the salami and the cheese is not. Not until you cook it together. And that's a grain that's also outside of Israel? Very good. So what does the Torah say? The Torah writes, uh, uh, let me just, This is the law for all your generations, regardless of where you live. That's what the Torah writes. That's how the Torah... So I will never know unless I grow my own grain, and I will never know. So that's, that's not entirely true. Uh, different countries, and I don't know how the situation in the United Kingdom is, and it could be that many cultural agencies in the United Kingdom actually care about Yashan. I don't know, I'm speaking for the United States. They actually do, I made some research, there's a few of them I do. Very good. Uh, in general, most bakeries uh, can give extra information for those interested, but most bakeries are fine in terms of Yashan. Okay, that's, see, that's something that we don't have the luxury of in America. By the way, you go, if, if you want to get in touch with him afterwards, this is a good conversation to have. It's an it's a easy mitzvah to keep if you do your homework and if you're able to prepare properly. So my wife and I, before Pesach comes around, or not before Pesach, right after Pesach comes around, we stock up on flour. How much flour? Uh, I don't know how to do the pounds to kilos measurement, but about 250 to 500 pounds of flour we stock up in our garage. In freezers, of course. We don't want worms, and then that's a whole different biblical provision. Uh, we have these big freezers, and we bake our own baked goods, breads, cakes, cookies the whole year. That's what we use. Now, the truth is that in America, at least, the United States of America, from Pesach until about July, August, all of the grain in the marketplace is yeshan. The turnover in this country takes a good four or five months till new grains come out to the market. There are many bakeries. If you go to a real bakery, they know if they use spring wheat or winter wheat. They know these things because they, there are different types of flour makes different types of bread. Anybody who's a baker knows that you need different types of flour to make So, for example, pretzels. I mean hard pretzels. I don't know what they're called the, on the other side of the pond. But uh, pretzels, they use a flour that very often is always yeshan, whereas fresh breads want a softer flour, which is very often chadash. It's the kind of thing that takes a little bit of homework to do. And I always encourage people, if you want to fulfill this mitzvah properly, it just feels overwhelming then you can take a very easy commitment on yourself. You know me that I'm not one to push stringencies on kashrut. If I found a way around this halakha, I would have done a long time ago. When I asked Arab whether I should leave Israel to go to America, I'm not exaggerating. Arab said, I'm not concerned about the education of my children. He's not concerned about living outside of Eritzah. He's concerned about how I'm going to find Yashan flower in San Diego, California. 
That's a reason to consider staying in Eretz Yisrael. That's what Abbas told me. Abbas, true story? True story. Uh, and this, this uh, is something you could do. Just decide for yourself, at least the bread that I eat on Shabbat. So what I do Hamotzi on on Friday night and what I do Hamotzi on on Shabbat day, that should be Yashan. Whatever else in the week, it's, you start there in another year. But you can always, it's easy to go to the bakery, find something Yashan, only for Shabbat, and then you begin to keep this Hanukkah. Bezalat Hashem, as time goes on, it gets easier. My meant to take a tangent here was to tell you that all, 90% of the people who scream at you, Chadash that new things are forbidden according to the Torah, most likely they don't even observe the laws of Yashan. So they're, they're, they're ignoring what it actually says in the Torah to use the phrase to mean something it doesn't mean. The first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel. Uh, he decided to upgrade the Bedin system. And part of what he did was instead of people coming to the Bedin and waiting for long hours in line until the rabbis were done with their whatever meeting shows up on a first come, first serve basis, Halaf Kuk instituted that there should be a secretary in the Bedin. And this secretary would book appointments and tell you, hey, come back tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. You won't have to wait in line. You'll be in and out in half an hour. And this way, the Betadin will be much more organized. The rabbis will know which cases are coming before them. And there was an uproar in the rabbinic establishment in Jerusalem. And one of the rabbis stormed into Rav Kook's Betadin and screamed at Rav Kook, how dare you put a secretary in the Betadin? For 2,000 years, we didn't have a secretary in the Betadin. And Rav Kook, without losing his calm, without at all blinking an eyelid, he looks at him and says, Dear Rabbi, is that what your rabbis taught you this Pasuk meant in Yeshiva? Because in the Yeshiva that I went to, and the commentaries that are found in my Chumash, this verse only refers to flour, has to be old flour, and you cannot eat new flour. But aside from flour, this Pasuk really doesn't talk about secretaries in a Bet Adin. And just like that, he continued on with his Bet Adin proceeding, and that was, sometimes you have to know how to answer. Rav Shem Tov is borrowing these catchphrases because they belong to a certain movement. Let's continue. Vani Omer, and I respond back to this generation. So this is actually the next sentence. If the old people don't have wisdom, uh, the bottom, the, the next teaching in Masechet Shabbat over there is that the tzirim, the young people, they don't have any knowledge. I mean, if the old people are dumb, then so are the young people. And about these people who love that which is new, about them it says, Where does that come from? You say it in the morning. Very good in the Shema Blessings. In the Shema Blessings, we say about the Kedosh many praises. He says here of Shem Tov Gagin, and this is also an old insult to hurl back at the Reform community, and that is that anybody who does something new equals Baal Nilchamot. He's the master of the wars. Meaning, you are the one who changed something, so you're the problem. I'm not the problem. You're the one who started the war. You know, you get in trouble by your parents say, well, he started it, she hit me, whatever it was. This is exactly the, the line that is being used right now. This is a, not an exact um, copy and paste, but this pasuk is found in Yeshayahu, chapter 48, pasuk 18. It really it says over there, which means tach. What is tach? Anybody know what that word means in Hebrew? It, Cover, right? But it, it comes from the word plaster. So you plaster the wall. And so they plaster, however, their eyes become covered that they cannot see. We're on the next page, page 7. That these old minhagim, they were established by prophets, by sages. 
אשר ראו את הנולד, they saw what was going to be in the future, ונמצאו מפוזרים בתלמוד, השינארי, והירושלמי, ובתוספות, והמדרשים, and they're scattered throughout rabbinic literature in both of the Talmudים and the other rabbinic works. ולרוב ריבועים לא נאספו בספר אחד, and really the truth is that most of the Jewish customs and תקנות were not collected together into one work, they were scattered throughout rabbinic literature. עד אשר קם הגאון הספרדי, רבי אליהו גליפאפה, Have you heard of Rabbi Yaw Gadi Papa? Rabbi Yaw Gadi Papa, I believe I sent you a Jewish encyclopedia entry last night into the Google Classroom. Rabbi Yaw Gadi Papa was a bull... Wait, what do you say? The Rav of Rhodes. Very good. Rav of Rhodes? Rav of Rhodes, he was, seems to have originated in Bulgaria and ended up in Eretz Israel, where he went back to Rhodes to be the rabbi. He gathered all of the rabbinic enactments in a book set, uh, the hands of Eliyahu. And they come out to be exactly 172. What does the word ekev remind you of? What does that pasuk say? That you have to listen to the mitzvot in the famous rabbinic commentary on the word ekev. What is, I believe Rashi quotes it over there. What does he say? El mitzvot. If I'm remembering the words correctly, Shadam Dash Bikvotav. These are the mitzvot that a person tramples on with their heels. They seem insignificant to you. And because they're insignificant, people trample on them. Meaning the number of rabbinic decrees comes out to exactly 172 according to the counting of Rabbi Eliyahu Galipapa. And afterwards comes Rablach. I couldn't find so much information about him. Moshe Labor Lob Blach. But he wrote a book, Vishikhlem Lakazobisifo. He got together and gathered an even better gathering of uh, rabbinic enactments in his book, Sha'ar Torah Takana'ut. So he really says it's hard because people don't appreciate the value of these rabbinic customs because they don't realize these rabbis foresaw the future and they don't realize that these teachings, they're so scattered, they don't see them all in one place to really appreciate their wisdom. But these two rabbis have done a tremendous service in trying to bridge that gap. Announces Rabbi Shem Tov the following. And just for the very reason that these minhagim were considered important enough to be mentioned by our rabbis in the Talmudim, it is our obligation to remember them and to uphold them, to respect them. And even if you find some unusual customs that don't fit the spirit of this generation, but because we have observed them throughout all of the generations of Am Yisrael, it is now incumbent on us to make sure that we uphold these minhagim. And this is exactly what happened in the first Ben Mikdash. The Jews there, they decided to ignore all of the extra rabbinic precautions. And because of that, in 70 years, they were forgot entirely the Torah. If you were familiar with the story of Ezra, Ezra coming back to Eretz Israel, it's one of the greatest, I'm going to give a shiur soon, after Hanukkah in the night call on the Rambam, that's the next person we're up to, what Ezra had to do to bring literacy, not just Torah literacy, but literacy in general, back to Am Yisrael. In 70 years we managed to fall in ways that you can't even imagine unless you read about them. They even forgot how to observe holidays in those 70 years. 
But whenever people tell you that we're living today in the worst generation of Jews who ever lived, the Jews of today, they don't even know anything about Torah, they don't know mitzvot. If the Jews you know still buy Hanukkah candles and gefilte fish with matzah balls uh, for, for Pesach and whatever it is, they remember that it's Oshana, so they, they eat some honey with their apples. These, are, these Jews are already light years ahead of generations that came before us. So don't be so hard on Am Yisrael. Yeah, Am Yisrael may have tr- struggles today. It's true. Right? I'm, I'm aware of that. But let's not call them the worst generation of Jews who ever lived. We've had Baruch Hashem. We've had our worst generation. We're actually doing pretty good right now in the scheme, the, the longer picture of Jewish history. It's already close to 1900 years. We've been pushed from one oppression to another. In our exile, not 70 years, almost 2,000 years. We've managed to only increase in wisdom and Torah. What was the cause of the flourishing success of Am Yisrael in the last 1900 years? Only that change of tides, the attitude towards Jewish tradition that happened in the Second Temple. This word is actually missing in my text. And he quotes here a source from a book called Mishpat HaHora'ah. Mishpat HaHora'ah is written by Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayes. Chayot, we call him in Hebrew. It was a beautiful Tamikham, a very special Tamikham. His insights into the Talmud are beautiful. He actually has an introduction to the Talmud, which is highly recommended. Until fairly recently, it was only available in Hebrew. Today, you can actually get your hands on an English translation of uh, the Maharat Chayot's uh, um, introduction to the Talmud. But he says essentially what happens in the second bit of Mikdash, the Jewish people's tides change. They start to take Jewish tradition seriously. And look at that, Baruch Hashem, 1900 years of Torah flourishing throughout the Jewish exile. And now, after Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin has said the following, he's geared up for an attack. Let's listen. En uma velashon sheba'olam. There's no nation, there's no people on earth. There is no people on earth whose traditions, whose customs, whose culture is not precious to them. Whether they're just mundane cultures, uh, not religious, or Kodesh, or religious, holy ones, sacred ones. By the way, this Kavdu Mizoken is found where? The book of Bereshit. Very good, thank you, my mother. Vene Israel kavdu mizoken. The eyes of Israel were getting old because of age. Vafilu otam hazayot shel hevel. Even the most stupid, nonsensical customs of the nations of the world. Hamiusadot al basis raua that are based on even the most fragile. Really, they have no foundation in reality. Odan hen chavivot benehem. They're still precious to them. Uvifat batei tefilatam. You know what's the most precious to the nations of the world? He says there are sanctuaries of prayer. Now I'll tell you the truth is you in Europe see this much more than we see it here in the United States. The United States likes to believe that it has history, but really this country is not so old. So historical things are not really that old when it comes to history. Uh, But you go throughout Europe and you'll see cathedrals, you'll see beautiful buildings that have been preserved and have been, uh, unfortunately the world has lost some of these in the last uh, 10 or so years. 
they keep them, even if they're not practicing that faith anymore, they're not that religious, they preserve them because they are remnants of the past. And they're ancient relics to them. Things that are antique, that are old, actually have more value. If you have a beautiful new church, it may not be as valuable as a very old cathedral that's been there for a few hundred years. And they always make sure that the buildings don't crumble, they don't fall into a lack of maintenance. And if they see any crack, anything going wrong with this building, they'll do everything in their power to make sure that this building is preserved. Says Rabbi Shem Gagin, and this is an allusion to a rabbinic teaching. The Navi complains that Am Yisrael, that when we learn, when we try to emulate the nations of the world, we never emulate the good goyim. We always emulate the worst of the worst. We always want to be the worst of the non-Jews we could find in the world. There are good non-Jews in the world, say our rabbis. The good ones. Why can't you be like them? It's an amazing thing. When I used to visit New York often, and I would meet these, uh, there's a whole world of like, uh, they call themselves OTDs. I'm not, I'm so not involved in, in titles and these kind of things. But they label themselves off the derech. I don't know what the derech actually is. But whatever it is, they stopped wearing uh, stockings and long black robes, whatever. Now they're living a different life. And they have all kinds of things that they are rebelling against. And I was sitting there and I, I said, you know, it's very interesting to me. They have a community of people who identifies what does it mean to be non-Jewish? It means let's get drunk, let's do drugs, let's go live in the streets, let's... You know, you think all the goyim are, are animals? Oh, Hashem, you just look at the world. There are people who have jobs, they have beautiful families, they have homes, they build countries, they're productive members of society. You don't want to be religious, it's fine, that's up to you. But why can't you be a good human being? Why do you have to go emulate the worst of the worst? It's only coming from a place where you think that people who are not Jewish are the worst of the worst. You come from such a bad place towards non-Jews, that's no wonder that's the conclusion you reach when you leave the Jewish community. But we should tell the world, look, our children, until 120, they shall all be part of Torah Mitzvot, but in the case that for whatever reason, they feel a need to deviate at some point in their life from that path, that to be a good person, you're not exempt from being a good person just because you're not interested in being a good Jew. First and foremost, you have to be a good person an upstanding member of society. Go look at the upstanding members of non-Jewish society. Look how much money, universities, academies, how much money they spend to acquire ancient manuscripts. By the way, here in San Diego, not far from me, there's a collection of maybe, I think there's 170 Sifrei Torah. Sifrei Torah. Written on deer skin, written on all, from Morocco, from Russia, from who knows where. You only have access to it if you belong to the Judaic department in this non-Jewish university. I wanted to go see them. Why on earth do they have a collection of Sifrei Torah? Because they value ancient manuscripts. V'kelim mekelim shonim. This is an allusion to another pasuk. What do you hear? V'kelim mekelim shonim. Megillat Esther, very good. If you're in an Ashkenazi community, they'll read this in the tune of Echa. It's a, it's a, the vessels of the Ben Megdash, meaning old uh, utensils, they keep all kinds of artifacts. And with these things, these artifacts, they enhance their libraries and their houses of prophecy. Look how we translate houses of prophecy. 
You see that English word in the middle of the page? Museum. It's a museum. They give uh, appreciation to relics of the past. Vikarim lehem yoter ma'avnei chefetz. And these things are more precious to them than jewels. Mishum shalehem tavua ruchosh and kol am ve'am. Because if you examine the artifacts from each nation, you'll find in them the spirit of that people. Valiadam and through them, midgale ofia v'tiva shen otauma. You're able to reveal the nature, the essence of that nation. Ve'chit patchu kishonotea and how its talents evolved. And through this appreciation of the past, the nations of the world push themselves to progress and advance into the future. And we're able to uncover scientific discoveries that were not known to us in the past. And through the appreciation of that which is old, People look into the past to discover plans for the future. The nations of the world are not embarrassed of where they come from. They're not embarrassed. I live here in Boko Haram in San Diego. All kinds of nations that used to be native to this place. I remember once as a kid on a school field trip, they took us out to a safari area to dance around and you know for rain and shake rain sticks and... Listen, it was a nice uh, cultural experience as a child. But if you think about it, I'm sure that many of the people who are still dancing around, it's part of preserving a culture, not necessarily because it's something I believe in, but it's something that is important to me. I want to make sure that my children don't forget where they came from. I'm not embarrassed of it. The people of Egypt are not embarrassed that their ancestors only knew how to use hieroglyphics and they were analphabetic. So what? Who cares? It's part of our traditions, part of it. We're going to preserve those pyramids. Why can't we at least be like them? Why destroy that which came before? Why not at the very least preserve it like those other nations of the world? But he didn't finish yet. Now he's going to attack full on. Chaval, it's a tragedy. My Elchanan now speaks Hebrew, so it's English mixed in with Hebrew. And uh, he tells me, Abba, it's such a chaval that, it's, a, it's like a, it's an interesting way to say that word. But he's right, it's chaval. It's a tragedy. This obsession, this infatuation with things that are new, this infatuation with new things has taken over everything. from this, It separates Jewish people from each other. It separates friends from each other. It's not just in Am Yisrael. In every nation, in every culture, you have those who are trying to be traditionalists, if I can call them that, and those who are trying to progress away from that tradition that are causing schisms in the world. And the new generation of Am Yisrael, they're imitating them like some monkey that just imitates everything they see people do, and ultimately they trample the Torah. This is from Bamidbar, chapter 15, Pasuk Lamed, and they tra- trample on the Torah, they teach the nation of Israel that it's okay to trample on the Torah in public. That's an allusion, Moshev Yehudit, is uh, from Masechet Kiddushin. There's Dat Moshe, Dat Yehudit, you can look it up over there. Umishnat HaTarag, and from the year 1843. Now, to tell you the truth, as I looked into the history of the reform movement, there are many dates. 
In the 1840s, was a very popular, 1842, 1844, 1841, 1848. There are a lot of dates. I don't know exactly what Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin is referring to that happened here exactly in 1843, but this is where he seems to throw it all into. The illness, this affliction of the reform group. Kita could also mean like a cult, but let's say a group. Bishderot Israel has taken over the streets of Israel. Bechol Are Europa and America, and it has taken over all of the cities of Europe and America. So now Rabbi Shemdov Gagin has attacked the reform movement as being the, the head of this serpent that is against things that are new. And that essentially this sickness has now taken over Europe and America. The Chol Mataratam and the whole purpose of the reform movement, he adds in the next page, he adds Hayom is up until this very day, how to remove the burden, to lighten the load of Torah from their necks. Whether in the written Torah, whether in the oral Torah, and this reform movement thinks that they are the national betadin in Jerusalem, that they could do whatever they want. And they're the ones who have the true wisdom and understanding of Torah. And they believe that they are the ones who have the right to edit, to reform, to change any of the minhagim of the Jewish people. And they have the audacity to stand up against the two pillars of halakha. Maran HaBet Yosef, Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo, Ve'arama Rabbi Moshe Yisraelish. Ve'ma she'kavu k'var kol ha-minhagim ha-kdoshim lanu b'shukhan aruch. That they have already codified all of the things that are holy for us, all of our holy minhagim b'shukhan aruch. Remember that if you look at the classes in the next series, this is the beginning of a pitch of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to rally the Jewish people around the book of the Shukhan Aruch. So his first axe to grind is with the Jewish community who most blatantly doesn't accept the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch and as such, according to Rishem Tov Gagin, has created a schism, a, a gap between Jews who observe Halakha and those who don't observe Halakha the way it was recorded in the Shulchan Aruch. I'm putting motivations right now on the side, just for a second. Ultimately this will lead into Rishem Tov Gagin. Yes, uh, you guys are going right now. Eventually, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is going to lump the Ramah into the category of those who undermine the Shulchan Aruch. Ultimately, he's going to attack the Orthodox community as well for also deviating from Shulchan Aruch. And this is probably part of something we should all be aware of. Is that when Chachmei Sfarad believed in upholding, whether it was the Shulchan Aruch or the Rambam or whatever book it was, they viewed unfavorably both sides of the spectrum. Both people who didn't see themselves subservient or needed to agree with or accept upon themselves the rulings of whatever code of Jewish law was at hand. A deviation from the law in either direction is deviation from the law. It doesn't really make a difference which side you're deviating from. If you drive too slow on the freeway or too fast on the freeway, you're still breaking the law. Either way, you're going to be stopped by a police officer. The same thing is true when it comes to halakha. But right now he's picking on the reform, so let's pick on the reform together with him. Uh, just, just for the moment, right now. So right now, what does Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin tell us? That there's a movement, there's a group of people in the world who have decided to undermine the Torah because they love things that are new. And right now, in this last paragraph that we'll do today from Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, he's going to lead us into next week's shiur. Nimtza biyadi. There's a book that I have in my hands, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. I own it. 
Yakar Ha'erich, it's a very precious book. Kinat Zion, it's called Kinat Zion. Does anybody know who wrote the book Kinat Zion? I actually think that some of you have heard of the rabbi who wrote it, you just might not know that he wrote this book. I got myself a reprint of, myself a reprint of this book. It's actually a very small book. It happened to be whoever prints it, printed a huge copy of it, but it's a very small book. Uh, this book, Kinatzion, is written by a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. Have you heard of him? Yes, okay, very good. Yes. yes. Next week's shiu is going to be dedicated almost entirely to Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan and his war against the reform movement and Chacham Faur's analysis of that situation. So next week is actually going to be a, a lot more controversial than anything I spoke about today or maybe anything I've spoken about in the past. But for right now, we've got to start somewhere. So I'm building, I'm setting the stage for you right now. This book, Kinatzion, it's a, it's a terrible print that we have. It's, a, it's an original print from the first copies. And you'll notice the pages are much smaller than the book. I don't know why they decided to print the book this way. This book was printed in conjunction with another man by the name of Tzvi Hirsch Lerin. Tzvi Hirsch Lerin, I sent you his biography to the Google Classroom. You won't find what I want you to find about him on the internet, but we're going to discuss what I want you to know about him next week. Uh, suffice it to say that if the Neture Karta are very happy to quote Tzvi Hirsch Lerin, there's a reason for it. And uh, Tzvi Hirsch Lerin is essentially the one who begins to drag Sephardic rabbis into the war against the new reform movement. And that's going to be next week's sure. I don't want to get ahead of myself. For right now though, I'm just letting you know, he's going to quote this book, Kinatzion, and he writes the following. I own this book, says Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin, of the Kinatzion of Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan. Which includes a collection of many, many Sephardic and Ashkenazi rabbis around the world. Against these reformists. And that the head of all of the rabbis signed on this. As my father's grandfather, the Chacham Bashi, the chief rabbi of Eretz Israel, Kvod Moreno Harav Chaim Avraham Gagin. Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin was the Rishon Lezion, was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. That office has been going on for a very long time, close to 400 years. And this Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin comes, like I told you in that first class, comes from this family of chief rabbis in Eretz Israel. And he says, I have my, my great grandfather's signature on this book. And these rabbis, yes, uh, who asked that? Actually, it's true. I will make it a free advertisement right now. The Safari Chabura in the UK is giving a class tomorrow about Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, correct? By none other than Professor Tzvi Zohar. If I could give you a recommendation in life, so here's a recommendation, take it from me. And I've never actually had the zakhut to speak with Professor Tzvi Zohar. But anything that Professor Tzvi Zohar writes, you should read. Just... That's my recommendation for life. It will enhance your life. It will also enhance your understanding of the world, especially many of the things we talk about. It is very rare for me to give a blanket, read everything one person writes on anybody, let alone somebody in the realm of academia. But uh, Professor Tzvi Zohar is not just an exception. He is, um, he's, uh, he, he is perhaps one of a kind who's doing what he's doing in the world right now. And he's teaching tomorrow in the United Kingdom. Uh, and so maybe if someone can send me the link I will be more than happy to share the link with our Google Classroom. Mord, can I ask you to share with me that link for tomorrow? Please. And if it's okay, maybe you can ask, I don't know who's in charge, but you can ask if it's okay for me to share with the, the group. I'd be more than happy. I'm planning to attend tomorrow also, so Bezad Hashem, I hope to be there. Um, it's the same Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan. I'm actually very excited. Although I'm a little bit afraid, maybe I should have taught you about Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan today so that you won't know everything by next week. Okay. 
הכולל בו כמה מכתבים, we said this already, ואלו הרבנים רדפו אחריהם על חמה לעבדי המעדה צלאלה, these rabbis persecuted the reform movement so that they could destroy them and separate them from עם ישראל. ותהילות לאל יתברך, and thanks to Hashem, blessed be he, שיד החרדים היא הגוברת, that the hand of the חרדים, here he's not using חרדים to refer to a denomination you're thinking of, חרדים meaning the hand of those Torah true Jews, if they would self-identify as such, they're the ones who have the upper hand, משנה לשנה, year, year goes by, ועדת הרפורם הולכת ופוחתת, and the group of the reform every year, thanks to God, says Rabbi Shem Gagin, is diminishing and diminishing and diminishing, and the world of the Haredim is growing and growing and growing. Listen, even if this wasn't in the introduction, I would have shared it with you anyways first. Because it's really important to understand this frame of reference. This place in which Chachmei Sfarad come from, especially after everything we've discussed regarding innovation. So we've talked a lot about innovating in Halakha, uh, innovating things, uh, changing Halakhot, if we may even use that word in some of our earlier classes, we discussed Rabbi Chaim David Alevi, Rabbi Yosef Masas, and it would make you wonder why Chachmei Sfarad have such an antagonistic attitude to Jews who really are just doing the same thing they're doing. Could I be as brazen to suggest such a thing? The reform movement changed a few halachot here, Rabbi Yosef Masah changed a few halachot over there. So what's the, what, why, why the war? Why are you so upset? And that leads to next week's shiur, which is there is something more sinister cooking under the scenes. But let's maybe do one more source for today and I'll call it a day for the shiur. I attached to the PDF um, a page of a new book that I got in the mail called Mitzuke Eretz. This is a verse in Shemuel, the book of Shemuel, Mitzuke Eretz. Um, it's an interesting collection. Rabbi Shlomo Moshe Amar, who's the chief Sephardic rabbi of Yerushalayim, was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. There's not a, love, a lot of love lost between our Ben Midash and Rabbi Shlomo Amar. There are many years that our Ben Midash was persecuted by Rabbi Amar. Today, Baruch Hashem, they made some kind of peace. Baruch Hashem, I'm not, I don't, either way, I stay out of politics in general. But uh, Rabbi Amar, they collected all of the times he spoke about stories. Rabbis that he had personal connections with. Rabbis that he, he knew, that he learned from, that he learned with, that he walked with, that he talked with. They collected all of those speeches and put it together in a book format. So Rabbi Yosef Masas, Rabbi Shalom Masas, Rabbi Moshe Malka, a lot of different Chachamim that he knew throughout his life. Ashkenazim, Sephardim, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, all kinds of Chachamim. And they put together uh, this book. If we could do a piece on page Kuf Pei, so if, for you it should be the second page on the PDF. If you go to the winter material, it should say Mitsuke Eretz, Rabbi Shlomo Amar. Do you see that? Yes? Perfect. He writes here, Zachiti l'shamesh kama shanim et ha'gaon Rabbi Yosef Masas Rabbi Shalom. I merited for many years to serve the Rabbi Yosef Masas, Rabbi Yosef Masas Rabbi Shalom. He was such a, known for his leniency. That people actually accused him of being too lenient. And if you remember the first time we studied the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas, I quoted to you a whole list of rabbis who had uh, not nice things to say about Rabbi Yosef Masas. Anybody who saw him up close saw his holiness. Anybody who heard Rabbi Yosef Masas recite in Shachrit or Mincha would see a living, breathing Musar book. 
תהיה בהמה, במלכות, בהדר ובכוונה, כמו המילים אשר יש בביתך, שרבי יוסף היה אומר שלוש פעמים בכל יום. If only the ne'ilah that we pray on Yom HaKippurim, the closing prayers of Yom HaKippurim that we pray, could be anywhere near the Ashrei Yoshvei Betecha, with the magnificence, with the greatness, with the holiness of Rabbi Yosef Masas' Ashrei Yoshvei Betecha, he said every day. He was a great genius. And listen to the sentence, I think it's a beautiful sentence. And because people who are brilliant, they have, brilliant people have this problem, they come up with brilliant novel interpretations. You may agree with their brilliant interpretations, you may not, that's your choice. But you cannot take away from brilliant people their ability to come up with brilliant thoughts that are novel, for sure. By the very essence, these are novel people. So because of that, their thought process is novel as well. Says Rabbi, I was once in an argument with the rabbi of the Eidah Haredit, this is the Badatz, the ultra-Orthodox Bedin in Haifa. By the way, what was he doing in Haifa? What was Rabbi Shlomo Amar doing in Haifa? He's the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. Before he was the rabbi of Haifa, of Yerushalayim, he was a rabbi in a place called Megadim. Megadim is a small uh, town outside of Haifa. Harav Peretz's father, Rabbi Yosef Peretz, was the rabbi of Megadim, and then Rabbi Shlomo Amar became the rabbi of Megadim. So this is what he was doing in the region of Haifa in the first place. Before I was a Dayan, he said he would ask me to sit in his Betadin of the Edah Haredit in Haifa. In one of the meetings of the Betadin of the Haredim, he scarred I mentioned Sahalacha that Rabbi Yosef Masa said. And when the head of the Haredi Bedin heard the name of Rabbi Yosef Masas, he said a, a, a terrible word about Rabbi Yosef Masas. But I told him, You are gravely mistaken about the way you understand Rabbi Yosef Masas. He said, listen, Rabbi Yosef wrote this and he wrote that. Look how lenient he is. I answered him, said Rabbi Shlomo you, dear Rabbi, grew up in a place where you have Jewish people who don't follow halakha like the rest of the Jews. Like the reform. Now, I brought this piece on purpose, right? We're attacking the reform. I'm trying to show you Sephardic rabbis attacking reform. So there's going to be a reason for this. On the next page, and so people who grew up in a world like you are conditioned that whenever they hear something lenient, they automatically accuse you of being reformed. Because maybe it comes from that direction. But in our countries, we never had people like that. We never heard such opinions and such questions. Let's skip to the last sentence here. And therefore, and every Chacham in our countries had permission to look at the Sugya, look at the Halakha, and tell whatever they wanted to say about the Halakha, whatever they understood, without the fear of being accused of being something else, because there was no something else. There were Chachamim who believed in Hashem, who believed in the Torah that was given to Sinai, and who followed Halakha. And if they had a novel interpretation of Halakha, that was, an, that was their interpretation of Halakha, but there was never a fear that maybe this novel interpretation of Halakha came from somewhere else. And so now the 
footnote here records a different class that Rabbi Shalom Amar, Shalom Amar gave about the Reform Jews. I'm reading to you these words with pain, and I'm reading them to you because it's right now in current events in the state of Israel. And with that, I'm going to end the shiur for today. It's footnote two on the bottom. Bet, you see footnote on the bottom of the second page? The reform Jews are searching how to cause the Jewish people to abandon their faith. That's like the same language we use about the Greeks in the story of Hanukkah. It's forbidden for a Jewish person to judge reform Jews favorably. You hear the sentence? It says in the Mishnah, judge everybody favorably. Here, it's forbidden to judge them favorably. They have the audacity to marry Jews and non-Jews together with no shame. Here he shares a personal story. He said one of the judges, a non-observant judge in Israel told me, that he went to a reform wedding. He went over to the rabbi to speak with him. And that man told him, I'm not the rabbi, I'm the priest. The priest wore a kippah to respect the Jewish wedding, and the reform rabbi wasn't wearing a kippah. So he thought that the one wearing the kippah was the rabbi, really he was the priest. Aside from all of the sins of the reform movement, they've now started marrying people kosher style, in a Jewish feeling, in a Jewish spirit. And they promised the couple, don't worry, we'll do a wedding for you. Anyways, in Israel, it's not considered a chupah v'kidushin. If it doesn't work out for you, you had a nice chupah with your parents and your family. And if it doesn't, you don't have to deal with the chief rabbinate getting divorced. And he goes here on a whole tirade against the reformed Jews and what they're doing. Uh, let's skip to the next paragraph at the bottom. They have audacity and, and brazenness to lie like we've never seen before. You have to advertise this. You have to train the young Israeli Jews. They're lying to you when they tell you that things are good by the reform. This is an evil movement that you have to uproot at its very origins. What causes... A rabbi, especially one who's Sephardic, especially one who doesn't belong to these wars, officially, of Orthodox and Reform, to get so worked up about these things. I told you next week I'm going to speak about the sinister side of it, correct? So this week I have to give you a, a thought that's in my mind. Really, I'll say it this way. So what is the difference between a Rabbi Chaim David Halevi, who advocates for innovation and in halakha, flexibility of halakha, of Rabbi Yosef Masas, who says that halakha changes all the time, of Rav Uziel, who says that in every generation you have to re-examine halakha so that it doesn't get rusty and break. We studied all these sources together. What is the difference between him and any other rabbi who says we should innovate halakha, we should change halakha, halakha is going to get rusty and break and is outdated for our times? And I think that at least in the eyes of the rabbis that I quoted to you right now, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin especially, it's a matter of loyalty. And I'm not here, now I told you in the beginning of the show, I'm not judging the reform movement. I'm trying to explain Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And I don't have the right to speak for him, but I'm going to speak in how I understand him. He always saw innovation as positive. It's a positive thing. But innovation is only positive. You only are able to innovate when you respect and cherish and appreciate that which came before. 
But when the reason why you innovate, the reason why you bring new things is to replace that which is old, because you despise that which came before you, because you're embarrassed of that which came before you, that already crosses the line by Chachmei That's too much. You can innovate when it comes from the old, in context of that which is old. But to innovate because you don't like that which is old, because you don't agree with that which is old, already that it's the same thing. Two Chachamim can do the same thing. But the motivations are different. I think it's very difficult in general to judge people's motivations. I think it's a hard one of the things. It's okay for people to do this if they mean How do you know if someone means well? Are you a Kadosh Baruch Bochen Kelayot Valev? The same Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, who writes this book against the reform movement, which is printed by uh, different rabbis and advocated and spread throughout the United Kingdom. In fact, the only reason uh, Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan was even coming to the United Kingdom, his official job description, was to fight the reform movement. That's why they brought him there. The same Rabbi Moshe Chazan in a different book of his writes a defense of none other than who he refers to as Haram Baman or Harav Moshe Mendelssohn. How dare you speak poorly of the great tzaddik Rabbi Moshe Mendelssohn. Which tells you that something here is not right. There's something here that we need to figure out. And next week's shiur was going to be dedicated to that. But if you think that this is a lesson in history, I want to share with you a detail from tonight. I'm closing my books. A detail from recent events in Israel. And I'll end you off with this thought. There's a rabbi in Israel who has written many, many books in halakha. He's not my rabbi. I'm not part of the Ben Milash. I appreciate him very much. And the things that I don't appreciate, I don't appreciate. But he's a big Tamil Chacham nonetheless. He recently, he's a rabbi of a city. He's a Rosh Hashiva, author of dozens of books in halakha. He recently committed a terrible crime. The crime was that he met with a female reform rabbi from France. He just sat with her to have a conversation. And the Jewish world blew up. The Sephardic chief rabbi went on record threatening this rabbi, telling him that he is in blatant violation of halakha, it's forbidden to meet reform rabbis. It's forbidden to talk to reform rabbis. It's forbidden to show that we even approve of them. Some reports even say that he was threatening him with uh, banning him from the Jewish community. The chief rabbi claims he never said it. I don't know, I wasn't there. He did speak about the fact that as a rabbi of the chief rabbinate, you have no right to do anything or say anything that is not in line with the chief rabbinate. And if the chief rabbinate has decided you can't do something, it doesn't make a difference what you think which is when you realize the chief rabbinate is a bunch of clerks that work for a central pope. There is a pope in Jerusalem, I guess. And here you find yourself in a very difficult situation. Because a senior posek, a senior, a senior Tamil Chacham, I told not from my camp, I'm not standing up, not from my midrash, but a senior posek decided to do something and now is being attacked right and left for this terrible thing that he did. But if I could just add to the record, Rabbi Yavadi Yosef, Allah Shalom, met with reform leadership. Uh, we have in newspaper articles from when he sat down with reform rabbis. So for, for the chief rabbi to say that it was forbidden to do such a thing, I don't know how his father was able to do it, but not the next generation. It's an interesting conversation to have at a different time. But the Jewish community is now burning up again. It's maybe for the first time in 60 years. Can we have interdenominational rabbinic meetings? Can we talk to each other? Can we share information with each other? Can we meet together? 
Now, I don't know what standards are in the United Kingdom, so I don't, I'm treading lightly here, because I know that in the United States, this camp is very divided in terms of do we meet, do we not meet. When I came to San Diego, I don't care if you're part of Amisla, you want it, but if you're not part of Amisla, you want it. I'm happy to sit with anybody who wants to sit with me and talk to me. You're not trying to change me, I'm not trying to change you. Shalom and Israel. But this is something that has been burning up the newspapers in the last few weeks. And I think that it would be remiss to think that all of this is the Shem Shamayim. Our rabbis tell us, Kol machloket every argument which is for the sake of heaven, sofal hitkayen. Ultimately, it will be established. Something good will come out of it. The kol machloket and every dispute that's not for the sake of heaven, and sofal hitkayen. Nothing good will come out of it. And I think if you look at the wars that have been going on in Jewish denominations, I have not thought of one good thing that has come out of the wars between Jewish denominations. And so clearly, if we believe our rabbis, which Rashem Tov Gagin just made a whole pitch that we have to believe our rabbis, if that's correct, then our rabbis gave us a way to measure our success. If it's not working out, we're doing something wrong. There's something that we're not doing correctly here. And I feel that we are at a pivotal place in Am Yisrael, in conversation. What are we going to be able to bring to the next generation? Who is going to be able to shut us down? Why are we being shut down? And I think it would be a mistake to think that it's the Shem Shamayim, as I told you just a minute ago. It can't be the Shem Shamayim because the results are not the Shem Shamayim. So what motivates Orthodox rabbis and Reform rabbis and conservative rabbis? And here you have Reconstructionist and Renewal and Humanistic and Bliyadara. You have denominations on denominations. What really motivates this fight? How do you get a Sephardic rabbi, a rabbi in Rome, rabbi in Eretz Yisrael, to get himself involved in wars in the United Kingdom over the reform movement. How do you do that? What power do you have to drag rabbis into wars that don't belong to them? There's a letter of a Rabbi Yosef Zundel of Salant. He was a rabbi in Yerushalayim. When the Sephardic rabbis came to Israel, the Hasidim jumped on them. Be in our camp, in the Mitanagdim, the opponent of No, be in our camp. And the Sephardic rabbis were deciding, so what are we? Are we Hasidim? Are we Mitanagdim? They didn't know what to do. And Rabbi Yosef Zundel of Salat, because they never heard about this before. They never, they never knew about these things. Rabbi Yosef Zundel of Salat writes a letter to the Sephardic rabbis saying, Rabbis, do yourselves a favor. Stay out of this war. We've been in this war for a few hundred years now. It's not going anywhere good. We know exactly why we're fighting with each other. Nobody's going to solve this problem. You don't have the same sickness we have. Just stay out of it. That was his advice. Harapelitz keeps a copy of this letter in his home, on his closet. Rabbi Yosef Zundel Hassan was, keep your head out of our wars. It's not important for you. So how do you drag them into the wars? The true answer is Tzvi Hirsch Laird. He's the answer. He's the reason. He's the cause. Not just him, but in every generation. says, In every generation there are those who rise up against us to destroy us. In every generation you have rabbis like Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin who rise up to destroy Am Yisrael. And in our generation you have the equivalent of a Tzvi Hirsch Lerin who did exactly that. Who brought this hatred into the Sephardic community as well. And not through love, not through the fact that they were fighting the Shem Shamayim to find people's motivations, but like everything else. As a wise man once said, money makes the world go round. And at the root of next week's shiul is money, corruption, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin, and the Sephardic war against non-traditional Ashkenazi movements. God willing, I hate to leave you in suspense, but I can't keep you here for another two hours. So Bezalat Hashem, we will be doing that together next week on Tuesday. I wish everybody a beautiful week. Shavuot Tov, Chanukah Sameach when it comes. I'm going to stick around for Shalot V'Chuvot for any questions anybody has.